Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Ladies and gentlemen, the Hockey PDO cast has regressed to the meet. This is episode 100 with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is uh, a man who's making his triumphant return to the show, back by popular demand. Uh, it's Jonathan Willis. Jonathan, what's going on, man? Hey, Dmitry. It's always uh, very much my pleasure to be here. Well, I mean, obviously your knowledge and, and sort of the stuff that you drop when you're talking is, is, is one thing, but it's your smooth, silky tones that I feel like <laughs> made you a, an inst- instant favorite on the show. Yeah, I'm sure that's it. <laughs> uh, so it, it's, it's, it's mid-August, and typically you'd think that you know we'd still be at least a couple of weeks away from having anything tangible and interesting or at least new to discuss. But lo and behold, in his final act before retreating into the shadows for now, uh, Patrick Wall provided us with one, one, one last final uh, mic drop. Yeah, that's good. I, I can't remember. I was thinking about it, and I couldn't remember an instance where a head coach had just suddenly resigned in mid-August, in, in the NHL at least. Like, I, nothing came to mind. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll discuss in a second what sort of the impact that has on the Avalanche and, and how it will affect their coaching search. But I think that it is fascinating to me that, by all accounts, it, it does sound like Patrick Wall really did leave this team on his own accord. He was potentially kind of pushed out a little bit or, or kind of, you know, at least shown the door by Joe Sackick over time based on some of the moves they made. But he definitely wasn't fired. And I don't know, it, 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 it's all sort of speculation and scuttlebutt at this point. But if you do look at their transactions this summer, um, that sequence of events certainly would line up based on sort of the thinking that, that went into those moves. Yeah, it, it's one of those situations where, well, you, you saw the reaction from the Avs was a little bit slow. It They almost... They seem to have been caught off guard by the move. Um, mm-hmm. And if Colorado was going to make a coaching change, you think they would make it much earlier in the summer, just because it's one of those things where if you're going to go hire a coach right now, almost all of the guys who would be, you know, if I were to make a list of the, the 10 coaches who I would really be interested in, almost all of them have jobs now. And it's going to be very difficult mm-hmm. to, to pry one of them away. So this was, the timing was odd. It, it really does feel like it was Patrick Waugh's decision. And I, I think the interpretation that the, the moves that Colorado made over the summer um, 
drove him away to some degree is is probably the correct mm-hmm. one. It's the only one that really makes sense from the outside. Well, and you know, it's, it definitely sounds like he was a big proponent of making some sort of splash move to, uh, obvi- it seems like it's right up his alley, right? Patrick Wall would obviously want something, something entertaining to happen to, to really mix things up. But instead they, I think they actually had a pretty prudent summer where they did a bunch of this small stuff to help on the margins, which will really help this team, I think, because for, for the longest time we've been discussing how they have a lot of star power and, and the top of their roster is, is really good. It can really kind of keep up with the best teams. But then as soon as you you start getting towards the depth there there they fall off the map and i mean look an eight hundred thousand dollar flyer on a guy on a stats darling like patrick weirkoch or getting guys like joel corborn and and fedor tudin on extremely low prices to patch those things up and and trading their third goalie for for rocco grimaldi who hasn't necessarily shown anything at the nhl level but has produced the ahl and used to be a, a top prospect like stuff like that um really seems like Joe Sackett kind of took control of the situation or, or maybe someone else, but it definitely doesn't seem like, uh, you know, Patrick Waugh's fingerprints were on all those moves. Well, one thing I think you can say Colorado did was they, uh, this summer, they demonstrated a commitment to their core players. And, and maybe that's what the difference is, because not only did they not make a splashy move and, and like you said, you know, sort of making these smaller uh, value bets, but they didn't, they didn't do anything that indicated they were dissatisfied with, the the roster of players that they have that they thought these were not the guys to carry the team forward and that's sort of at odds with things that Patrick Law said over the year and I wonder if maybe that's where the divergence comes um Tyson Berry's maybe the best example they signed him to a long-term contract and for a long time Mm -hmm. you know well everybody around the league was watching because there aren't that many right shot offensive defensemen uh that could plausibly have been in play and and Berry was one of them but uh part of the reason there was spec that he was going to go was there was a feeling that people within the Colorado organization were dissatisfied with him and that ended up mm-hmm. not being what happened and, and you wonder if maybe Patrick Waugh thought it was going to go a different way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and just based on uh some of the rumblings we're hearing out of that arbitration, it, it's always it can always be a messy situation where basically if you're the team you're trying to you're like telling the player everything you don't like about him as you try to drive his price down and then ultimately if you wind up coming to terms in a longer term deal, it it can be a little bit of an awkward situation, but I guess obviously you know money can smooth that stuff over and and you you look at whether it's Barry or or even McKinnon who they locked up this summer for what 6.3 million until he's 27 or or Landeskog or Duchesne, I do think one thing this management group has done well is get all of their core guys under contract for their prime years for really, really reasonable prices. Yeah, that's. I think that's fair. Um, and it is something that you don't really generally see NHL teams being given credit for, but signing guys to long-term deals, especially if you have cap space now, it's one of those things that can make for smooth sailing down the road later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And all right. So here's the thing about Patrick Wall. Like I, I, I think that we should preface it by saying that I, I'll personally miss him. I, I think he's going to resurface, you know, sometime down the road, but for now, like his shenanigans were, were good for the league, right? Maybe they weren't good for the team he was running, but we're always going to kind of justifiably complain about how vanilla some of these players and coaches can be with the quotes they give and the stuff they do. I think we also need to appreciate a little bit, uh, sort of how entertaining and how out there he was as a, as a personality. Well, Patrick Waugh has been larger than life since his playing days. He's uh, 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's such a phenomenal personality. He's he's so interesting. He's so fascinating from a media perspective. You can't help but love the guy. Um, I, and I, I think you make an interesting point about how you know we we do kind of complain about canned quotes and and vanilla responses. And part of the problem, part of the reason we get those quotes and responses is because when people show personality, they get ground down. Uh, Patrick was a good example. I mean, normally, mm-hmm. normally the example I would I would give you is is PK Saban and the amount of backlash he gets from con- sort of conventional hockey people. But Patrick was a good example of a guy who gets um, hammered even by sort of you know the newer wave. And uh, you know maybe I think you can make the case that a lot of the shenanigans, like you said, you know they're maybe not good for the team. But they are a lot of fun, and it, it is nice to see that life in the league. And um, yeah, I, I agree. I'm going to miss him. I don't know that the Colorado Avalanche are going to be any worse off not having him, but I'm going to miss him. Yes. Yeah. Well, that that and that's the elephant in the room, right? Where it's it became quickly it became clear pretty quickly that he wasn't the guy for the job. It was just in over his head because, um, you know, I, I've heard from different people that maybe have have spoken to him and, and or know him personally that um, maybe some of the stuff he was spouting off in the media wasn't necessarily stuff he believed, but it was just sort of his personality to stir things up and, and build up this adversarial persona. But then you look at the job he actually did on the ice and you definitely raise your eyebrows because whether it was his, you know, his man-to-man defensive scheme in, the, in, in his own zone or or just his quotes on on shot quality and how possession stats weren't actually that meaningful all while his team was uh just getting speed bagged on a nightly basis like uh there was a mismatch there between uh sort of what he was saying and 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 what was actually happening on the ice yeah I, i think one of the sort of the interesting things with most coaches that get into this position where their team's getting out shot every night and especially coaches that are in a position where the team is outperforming their shot metrics, we're at sort of a point in the analytics conversation where it's possible to question um, how valuable those shot metrics are, right? Like, I mean, I don't think there's a lot of question on, on, in the stats community about how, how valuable they are, at least on the team level. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're, if you're in the league itself, this is still something that if, if you don't come from a sort of a numbers background, yeah, you might have some doubts, especially if the team is winning. And so if you are a coach, even if you honestly believe that these shot metrics are predictive and your team's getting hammered, you're kind of in this tough position where you could say, yeah, our shot metrics are bad, our team is terrible, I am a terrible coach, you are right, I'm so sorry. Or you can say, right. oh, you know, these shot metrics, that's, that's garbage, look at, look at the wins, man. And, and so sometimes when the coaches talk about how pointlessly shot metrics are i wonder a little bit if it's not just self-preservation and the same sort of thing you do in any other situation where you're going to gloss over the bad because there's no advantage to airing that that dirty laundry publicly um Mm. i i kind of think that that's what drives it a lot of cases even with coaches who might have some time for the shot metrics you'll notice that the people who talk about how the shots uh, you know corsi fenwick those sorts of things the people who talk about how they don't matter, or sorry, who don't talk about how they don't, blah. You never see a guy who's in a, who's in a, who's in a top team by the shot metrics talking about how garbage right. the shot metrics are. Right. It, yes. it took a while to get there, but that was the point. 
<laughs> yes, no, no, it's a, it's a point well taken. I think that timing is everything, right? Because they had that first season where um, all the underlying numbers were saying that they weren't nearly as good as they were, but they just kept winning and, and winning. And, and it was a bit surprising, too, because when he took over the team, you know, if, if it was this slow upper trajectory where the first, second year they missed the playoffs, but they were playing entertaining hockey and, and winning, you know, we're a 500 team, for example, um, it might have been a different story, but they came out of the gate so hot that after that, I feel like the next two years were just sort of a courtesy just because they were trying to kind of regain that high. And obviously, for people like you or I that were following this stuff, we kind of realized that it was a, a, bit, of, a bit of a fool's bet to, to be kind of chasing that all over again. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there's a couple of interesting points worth making there. Um, the first is, I think you're absolutely right. They got off to such a great start that they were able to ignore it for a while. Um, the second I'd say is Patrick, Patrick Wall, what he said on the subject was not dissimilar from what Joe Sackick said on the subject. Uh, Sackick had some very dismissive comments about the whole idea of analytics that first summer because they did play so well. And the final point, I don't think this came as a surprise to anybody who follows the numbers of, of hockey because we've seen this story before. We saw it in Toronto. We saw it in Calgary. Every, we saw it in Minnesota a few, going a few years further back. Every year, it seems like there is, because this is just the way it works, there are teams that will outperform their shot metrics every year. Um, the shot metrics, I kind of treat them as giving you a probability curve, and then you fall in around it. And there's always, in a 30-team league, there's always going to be at least one team that does significantly better than its shot metrics. And mm-hmm. the problem is that it's not the same team every year. Teams don't seem to have found a way it, it doesn't seem to be true talent because it's not repeatable. And uh, that, that's the thing that can get lost because 82 games, like we, when we talk about it in the summer, a single season doesn't seem like a long time. But when you're watching 82 games and you're watching each one of these games, it seems like a really long time. And when you're good for that long, it's easy to delude yourself into believing that it's, that's the reality. Right. And I mean, you look at these numbers in their totality from when he took over in 2013 until this, the end of this past season, and they're really jaw-dropping, right? Like, the only the Leafs and Sabres gave up more shot attempts at 5-on-5 five, five five than the Avs did, and... and for large stretches of those three years, those two teams, you could argue, weren't, weren't, weren't trying to win, right? They weren't even pretending like they were trying to win. They were actively losing to, to better their draft stock. And I mean, you go on and on. It's, it's, it's stuff where the Avs for a team that was trying to position itself in the standings and in the media as a team that was contending and definitely had players that are either in their prime now or entering their prime that could help them get there. They were amongst, uh, the, really the seller dwellers in pretty much every other underlying category. So I think the, the the fact that it took this long to happen is really kind of the only surprising thing. Well, and, and I think maybe it speaks a little bit to goaltending too. Because if you if you arrange these teams by shot metrics and you look at the teams that are, you know, at the bottom third, bottom quarter of the league or so, most of them have not had phenomenal goaltending. Colorado has had a 928 save percentage over Patrick Waugh's time there. And I know Patrick Waugh has said things in the media about, um, you know, Semyon Varlamov not being a good enough goaltender for them. Um, I don't know if he put it that bluntly, but he has criticized his right. play. And, and I look yeah. at it and I go, are you kidding me? Like, why do you think you've been surviving the way you have? It's, um, this would not even be close. You would be, you know, the Maple Leafs or the Sabres if it weren't for the fact that you've had pretty good goaltending. Yep. Yeah, and and I mean, listen, the, the the one sort of counter that I think Patrick Wall supporters would have is that you look at this blue line they've assembled, and it's clearly not 
great by any means, but I, at the same time, like there is talent there. And when you watch this team, it's it's one thing to not be good enough. It's another thing to just look like you're unprepared and not necessarily have a game plan. And, and when you looked at them in the defensive zone, there was just so many situations where they were scrambling and leaving guys wide open in, in the slot area that you do wonder how much of it was personnel-based and how much of it was actually coaching. Yeah, it, and that's always the um, the tough call with these sorts of situations. Um, but what I would say is, if if you look at the shot metrics over time, Colorado has actually gotten worse. Like I, I'd have to go back and run the numbers, but as I recall, Patrick Waugh's first year with the team was either the high watermark or close to it, and it was certainly better than this season. And mm-hmm. when you see that kind of deterioration over time, it makes it easier to believe that it's coaching rather than personnel, because theoretically... Uh, the personnel is not getting worse, especially with a team like Colorado, which has a lot of young players. And, you know, with time, a coach should be able to, you know, the first year is sort of a transition year, and then you should be able to to instill the things you want to instill and make some forward progress. And, and that didn't happen with the Avs. Well, and I, I guess we'll see pretty quickly based on you know, the new coach they hire, um, whether they have turned to leave here and whether Joe Sackick and, and the people pulling the strings are a bit more progressive and, and whether it was Patrick Waugh who was to blame mostly or whether it is a personnel thing. But I'm kind of just looking at the landscape of coaches they could potentially hire. And it, the, the timing is rough because it, it is, as you mentioned, it's mid-August now and, and it's certainly an unconventional time to still be looking for a bench boss. And, you know, you wonder if for a team like this, if they had pull the trigger on this a few months ago and, and been in the sweepstakes for a guy like Bruce Boudreaux, how, how different things would be? Well, that, that is the problem. And there's sort of an X factor there. Um, I don't, I can't say definitively how teams are going to react if Colorado comes and says, Hey, we want to hire your guy or we want to interview your guy. Um, I, I just, we don't have a lot of history of, of how that works in August. Um, you know, because there's theoretically enough time between now and the start of the season that if you have a, you know, an assistant coach or an American League coach, you could theoretically replace him. But you run into the same sort of problem that Colorado's having right now, and I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if a lot of these teams go, no, you you can't talk to our guy. It's way too close to the season. You know, we're getting ready for training camp. We we just don't have the ability to uh, to part with him. And if that's the case, then Colorado ends up. Looking at you know somebody like Bob Hartley, there aren't very many people like oh. Bob Hartley out there. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, or or somebody who's in sort of a unique situation. I think of uh, you know Dale Hunter in the OHL or or uh, Brent Sutter in in uh, the WHL. Guys who because they own their teams have the latitude to do pretty much whatever they want. Mm-hmm. But there aren't yeah, that many guys out there. Yes, yeah, and and I do wonder if. Um... You know, some of these guys might also be eyeing that, that potential vacancy in, in Las Vegas, which still hasn't been filled yet, which adds another wrinkle to the to the coaching landscape. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And uh, we saw this with, um, well, the thing about Las Vegas versus Colorado, uh, if Colorado doesn't improve, I mean, Joe Sackick's now, what, three three years into his tenure? Well, it's hard to tell because he wasn't named general manager immediately when he came to the team, although he... But but the thing is, you don't necessarily know what the long-term future is in Colorado. In Las Vegas, it, it, I mean, we've seen expansion coaches get fired right away, but then you look at a guy like Barry Trotz in Nashville, and, you know, he, he basic, basically he did a good job, and he had, had a job for 
for an incredibly long time by NHL coaching standards. And you know you're going to get a grace period because that always happens with expansion coaches. So absolutely, the, yeah. the position in Las Vegas is going to be intriguing for anybody who doesn't have work yet. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned a guy like Bob Hartley, and I, I think that would be the, literally the definition of a, of a lateral step if they went to a guy like that. And I'm always, I'm always pro giving, uh, whether it's a guy in the AHL or, or or in major junior or something like that, a chance to to come up and prove himself rather than going with a known commodity, which you know isn't that good to begin with. Yeah, that it, I, I don't. Uh. Hartley's an interesting guy because <laughs> Hartley's yes. had success in the past, but the problem is yeah. that his, you know, his run in the, in the sort of the analytics era, that period since 2007, 08 has almost entirely been with Calgary. And I mean, there's a bit of time with Atlanta in there, but these are not good teams that he's been coaching. So it's a little, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you run into the same situation where you're trying to separate the coach from the roster. So I, I wonder a little bit if Hartley's is you know, because there's kind of two versions of Hartley. Like, let's not forget he won the Jack Adams Trophy in 2014-15. So the the sort of analytics perspective that he's he's not that great of a coach is not necessarily the the consensus viewpoint. And I and I'm not a hundred percent sure that the sort of the analytics view of him is is accurate. Um, having said that, he wouldn't be near the top of my list. Right. Well, especially I mean, you you mentioned he did win the Jack Adams. Um... The, the the track record of Jack Adams award winners and and what's happened to them in the, in the, in the next couple of years isn't necessarily uh, the, the best thing. It, I think that's the uh, the strongest argument for ignoring Jack Adams trophy voting is how often these guys get fired very very quickly yes, after. Yes, yes, just sort sort by the PDO column and figure. Yeah, out exactly, that exactly. Because it it, um, it really is the sort of comeback coach or the surprise coach of the year, and usually the reason you're a surprise coach of the year is not only Maybe did you do a good job, but a lot of things went your way. Right. And it's, it's very expectations based, right? Like if you're expected yeah. to be one of the best teams in the league and a contender and, and you do it, it's like, great, you did your job. Whereas if you're a team that wasn't necessarily expected to do anything and all of a sudden you're right up there in the standings, it's like, whoa, you, like the coach must have done something miraculous here. So let's reward him for it. Yeah. If you're, you know, if you're Mike Babcock or Joel Quenville, you generally don't get those awards. I mean, Babcock, now that he's in Toronto, has got a much better shot at it than he did in Detroit. Right. Um, All right, Jonathan. So you cover the the Edmonton Oilers pretty closely. And I think that let's do it this way. Um, Let's pretend that I just woke up from a coma that I went into in in mid-June. And I'm wondering what the Edmonton Oilers exactly did this summer. Give me a a quick rundown, a, a, a keynotes version of what happened this summer with them. Okay, um, so first you're going to want to sit down and maybe pour yourself yes. a drink. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so the, the, the landmark move here was they traded Taylor Hall to New Jersey for Adam Larson, one-for-one deal. Um, they signed Milan Lucic to replace Taylor Hall. They drafted, they had Jesse uh, Pugliarvi fall into their lap at fourth overall the draft, so they took him. Mm-hmm. And they signed Jonas, Gustav, Jonas Gustafsson to be their backup goaltender. And they also bought out Lori Korpakoski. And that's, that's mm. the Coles Notes version. So, okay, let's, get, let's, let's take it from the top there. So the Taylor Hall thing is interesting to me because obviously 
I think we've discussed on this show plenty of times about you know just marveling at how remarkably effective he is as a player as a player and the fact that at 24 years old he's only conceivably kind of entering his peak years right now but the the backlash to this trade has been or not not necessarily the backlash but the stuff that's trickled out afterwards uh from the Edmonton media has really caught my eye because it's not necessarily surprising that it happens it, it generally you see this stuff take place after a big trade but just sort of the whether it was the Oscar Clefbaum thing about how uh, I think it was a Swedish report about how he struggled against the top teams in the league, or or I've seen other Edmonton-based writers question Taylor Hall's leadership and wonder whether the Oilers are better off now without without him in the room. Like I don't know. Just what do you, what do you think when you see stuff like that come out? I I think it's a little bit in a lot of situations you see a player leave town and the slagging is sort of instigated in the media immediately. I don't know that that's actually what happened here. Um, like Oscar Clefbaum gave this report. He didn't give it to an Edmonton journalist. He gave it to, you know, a Swedish paper. Uh, right. So that, it, it's sort of organic. Um, you know, nobody was prompting Ben Skirvins to say things about Taylor Hall. Nobody was taught. Uh, it, it's one of those things where, and, and the, thing, the crazy thing is that this did not start this season, right? Like it's not like the, the Edmonton media that I've seen sort of questioning his leadership in, in some cases, you know, this is going back to 2014, uh, 2015 pieces that were written then talking about based on people in Edmonton management saying things like, well, you know, culturally, maybe he's not the greatest fit or, or whatever. So this is, I don't just hand wave it away. I, I don't think it's fair to do that. I, I don't think it's fair to take it at face value and go, oh, well, Taylor Hall was a terrible person and a, an awful human being in the room. But I do think it's, it's one of those point cases where if that's what you're focusing on, you're really losing sight of the big picture. I, I, don't, have, I don't have the numbers at my fingers, but over Taylor Hall's career, the Oilers are something like plus five when he's on the ice and minus 200 when he's off the ice. Like it's literally that stark. So don't don't talk yeah. to me don't talk to me about the intangibles. The tangibles here are so massive that I don't care <laughs> what the what the intangibles are. And to me, a huge part of it is the product of saddling him with the failures of the Oilers rebuild as a whole. And when you look at his performance on the ice, to me it's ridiculous to saddle him with the failures of this franchise. You cannot blame Taylor Hall for the sins of Leonard Petrell. <laughs> and so that's my capsule that's, capsule view of it. I think uh, the sins of Leonard Petrell should be like the name of some rock band or something. <laughs> um, the, the the thing the trouble I have reconciling uh, sort of the the culture and, and intangible stuff is I, I definitely think that it's a thing, right? It's it 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 plays a role because there is a human element to the game and 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 dealing with people on a daily basis, but. When there's such a big divide between that and the product we're seeing on the ice, that's where I kind of raise my eyebrow. And, and, and you mentioned it. I mean, from 2010 to 2016, which is the, the length of time Taylor Hall was in Edmonton, whenever he was on the ice, they were a 50.6% five-on-five goals for team, which is uh, a, you know in the black, barely, but it's still <laughs> compared to the fact that they were 439 when he was off the ice. Like it's if if he was such a problem, wouldn't you see some of these issues start to manifest themselves while he was on the ice as opposed to pretty much when anyone else on the team was being tasked with with, with playing? Like it's it's the 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 divide there is just something that I, I can't really kind of wrap my head around. Yeah, it, I I think 
you know, if you're if you're looking at things from a you know sort of a cultural leadership in the room standpoint, people will say the results aren't necessarily when he's on the ice. He's com- contributing to team morale as a whole, and and looking at it that way, you're you're missing the leadership part. And I don't know if I I, I can't say that that's not true. You know, you know, like if it's if it's legitimately a problem, I can't say it's not true. I do think that there are intangible things that you know, matter and, and that just hand waving them away is probably a bad idea. But right. I mean, let's, let's have some perspective here, right? <laughs> like the, mm-hmm. this is, it's such a small part of, and, and, and the other thing is the way I'm talking, I'm sort of giving credence to the idea that he was, you know, a, not a great leader or whatever. And, and that would be a mistake too, because basically what we have are little half comments from people a lot of times, you know, outside of Clefbaum's comment, which actually, you know, didn't reference character so much as it did on ice performance. Outside mm-hmm. of that comment, a lot of this stuff is done by people who, you know, never gave their name to the press, never, or sorry, never had their names published at the very least. Mm-hmm. Like this is sort right. of shadows and innuendo and, and rumors. And it's amazing to me how much this stuff forms a life of its own. Because, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So we, no, we don't get to actually see what's going on in the room all the time. So we sort of gr- latch onto this gossip and take it as, as fact. And uh, to me, the idea that you're running out the, the most effective player, the, maybe the only truly effective player of the last six years in Edmonton, um, based on rumors and gossip and innuendo, it, it's baffling to me. Yeah, yeah, and then I mean, kind of flipping it around to the guy they got in return. Um, I I always might not necessarily be fair to Adam Larson as a player, but I always get squeamish just at the idea of of trading directly for need and giving up value to do so. And it certainly seems like the Oilers did exactly that here because uh, I'm sure that as soon as uh, New Jersey kind of got word that th- this was the trade the Oilers were looking for, they couldn't they couldn't announce this trade quickly enough. Like it's it just seems like such a no brainer for them, regardless of how Larson really does in, in Edmonton. Um, what what are your what are your thoughts on him as a player? Because it is a bit of a polarizing subject because he he was a former top pick and you know he has these tools when you watch him play and and there's reason to be optimistic but at the same time he's been in the league for a handful of years now and we haven't necessarily seen any of that translate into actual on ice success. Yeah, Larson's a Larson's a really interesting player. I like him quite a lot actually. I, I to me though it's one of those situations where I'm always, I always dock a guy for playing with Andy Green. I, I just do. And Andy Green's a superb defenseman, and I don't really trust a guy until I see what he can do away from Andy Green. So there is that. Uh, he had, he played extremely tough minutes last year. Like if if you look at how NHL coaches use their their shutdown defense pairing, you could make a case that New Jersey put Larson and Green through the ringer more than any other team did with their guys. And Larson's numbers in that context are pretty decent. Uh, I, I guess what it comes down to is is looking at it independently of the trade. Adam Larson's a great fit for Edmonton. I just can't get to the point where you know he's worth Taylor Hall. Right. Yeah. That 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 seems kind of the the weird thing for me. I feel like he was available for much less than the price the Oilers actually paid for. Well, I wonder about that. Um, like if you're New Jersey and and you're talking to Edmonton, who do you take off the roster instead? You know, like Ryan, does Ryan Nugent Hopkins get it done for you? I don't I don't know that he necessarily does. Um, it's it's a little surprising to me that it was a one for one deal, 
But then th- this sort of fits Peter Shirelli's uh, M.O., even in Boston. Um, you look at things like the Coberlet trade. You look at the Sagan trade. You look at the um, – I, w- I was looking at their cup-winning team the, the other day. Uh, they traded Blake Wheeler for Rich Peverly. And, I mean, Blake Wheeler then was not the Blake Wheeler now. But even so, this is something – and it's something Peter Shirelli did with Griffin Reinhardt last year. This is not a general manager who has a – like, once he identifies a player he wants – he has a history of pain, you know, whatever it takes to get them. And uh, right. that to me is that to me is probably what happened here more than anything else. Like we can talk about, you know, the, these whispers about Hall's character or whatever. Really, it boils down to, for me, Edmonton was a wasteland on the right side. You hear Peter Shirelli talk about Adam Larson. It's clear that he loves this player. And Taylor Hall was the trade that he could make to get it done. So he got it done. Yeah, well, I'm not trying to necessarily use the Griffin Reinhardt trade and the Blake Wheeler for Rich Peverly as as uh, two uh, signs of optimism for the. Oh, oh, uh, oh no, I'm I'm <laughs> I, I'm just trying to put it in context here. I don't think yes. that it's uh, I I don't think it's a good trade. I don't think it's a trade. I, it's certainly not a trade that I would have made in his shoes. But you know, this does sort of he he has a history of doing this. Right. Yeah. For sure. Um, well, I think the I think the Oilers will be entertaining to watch at least this coming season. Obviously, with whenever you have a guy like McDavid and some of the other assets they have up front there, uh, there it'll be re- reason to tune in on a nightly basis. But I do wonder if if things go sour again based on some of the holes they have in their lineup. Who is going to be the one to blame uh, when when things go south? I don't know. Like, is, is it going to be Ryan Nugent Hopkins next? Uh, is it going to be Peter Shirelli eventually? Like, I don't know where the dominoes are going to fall next. Well, it will be Peter Shirelli eventually if it doesn't turn around. Um, Jordan Eberle is already signed, sort of transformed from from patron saint of Edmonton to to whipping boy, so he would probably be the the front runner for for the next next season. But it, it's hard to know in advance. Really, it it kind of depends on which good young player who's been around for a while has a bad year, right? Because I mean, because I mean, really like a, a year ago, it was Ryan Nugent Hopkins was you know the the savior and. 2014-15 he was great and you were wondering a little bit about Taylor Hall and then Taylor Hall had a great year and yeah it's one of those things that uh you can't really predict in advance who, who people will turn on I think it's probably still a little early to turn on Peter Shirelli but that Hall trade it's so dramatic that uh things might sour on him if things go south immediately yeah he sort of called this he sort of called the shot there um yeah hey jonathan before we get out of here let's uh i feel like we have this obligation to talk about jimmy vc just because uh it is sort of the main storyline going on in the in the hockey world right now and and i think that um rather than focusing on the on ice perspective because i don't think either you or i would necessarily classify ourselves as prospects guys and we can sort of look at his superficial numbers and and judge him that way but i don't think that's going to necessarily do us much good or provide a lot of nuance i think the the more interesting aspect of this entire discussion is um, the fact that people seem to be taking issue with the fact that he's doing his due diligence here and, and waiting to ultimately pick where he wants to play. Like th- that's baffling to me considering that it's his right as, as, and it's something that's been collectively bargained in the CBA in the past. So, like why wouldn't he be, he doesn't necessarily owe anything to the Buffalo Sabres, for example, who traded a third round pick uh, to get his negotiating rights. Like he should do exactly what he can do for his best interest. Right. Oh, absolutely. He should, but this is always extremely controversial. Um, the way the NHL system works, you know, once these kids are drafted, basically they don't have any options until they're 27. Like that, yeah. that's just, that's the system. You are a servant of whichever team takes you until you're 27 years old, unless you do something really radical. 
so this loophole, <laughs> and it's not actually a loophole because they know about it and they didn't close it, but uh, we, we can, you know, it's often called a, a loophole where a guy who uh, takes that certain route gets to head to unrestricted free agency at such a young age. That drives people nuts because we're not used to thinking about young players like that. You know, your team drafts you, you now owe something to the team. And, and most players, you know, go along with it. Most players don't have other options. And it, it's jarring when somebody does. And you go, well, why does Jimmy Vesey get to do that and not, you know, pick a prospect? Um, yeah. I don't think there's any, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. You know, he's exercising his right. If, if I were an unrestricted free agent at the age of 23, I'd certainly consider my options before making a decision. I'd certainly want to talk to other teams. Why wouldn't you? What's the downside? Um, yeah. But yeah, it, you get you always get criticized, and and this has happened. I can't think of a case where this has not happened, where a player was drafted, um, checked out his options, and and wasn't you know vilified by the team that had his rights. Yeah, yeah. and I think the the track record in, in in the recent past on these guys has been sort of mixed. You you obviously have kind of success stories, but then you have guys that either haven't lived up to the hype or have completely flamed out. And I think that obviously for the team that's going to sign him, it's, it's a no brainer just because it's essentially a free asset. You're paying the the money to actually sign his contract, but it's still, it'll serve as an ELC and it'll be capped for him and, and you're not burning a pick on him. So it's, it's a no brainer to add an asset like that into your system. But I do, I do wonder like a guy that's already 23 years old. I mean, we just mentioned Taylor Hall's 24, for example, and, and people have been talking about him like he's this, you know, aging veteran who's been in the league forever, and, and Jimmy Vesey is just a year younger. And I wonder what his actual ceiling as a talent will be once he gets to the NHL. It'll probably be he'll probably be a, an instant contributor, but I just wonder whether uh, people are getting a bit too excited just because it is mid-August and there's nothing else to talk about. That's part of it, and part of it, I think, is the the way the system works. Um, I, I remember reading a story about the NHL restricted free agency, unrestricted free agency system. And it was talking about back in the 90s and the, I mean, take this with a grain of salt because I can't remember where it came from. <laughs> but uh, basically the, the argument was made within the NHLPA, according to this story, that, you know, unrestricted free agency, the way it worked, having a narrow trickle where guys only made it at the age of 31 was the best possible outcome for mm -hmm. The, the NHLPA because it artificially inflates these guys. You know, if the only players you can add without giving up an asset or making a trade, the only guys you can add for just money are all 31 years old, those guys instantly become way more attractive than they would be if you have access to guys who are 26, 27, 28. And no, that makes sense. Well, it's the same thing with college free agency, right? Like, how often does an NHL team get to add a you know, what, what would you place Jimmy Vesey's value at a first round pick? Maybe, you know, maybe think, a, a late like first a round second, pick, maybe high second, yeah, late first, like that. whatever you want to call it. That's free. Right. All of a sudden you get, you know, if you can get that for free, that's a, that's a big win, especially with how crazy the draft is these days as a, you know, like the draft is what teams build on. And you hear this all the time from NHL GMs. So you get the chance to add a free, call it a, a number 40 overall pick. Uh, yeah. You get that a chance to have that for free, and there's only one of them out there. Of course, it becomes a crazy bidding war, and of course, the player gets overhyped. Like it, it's just a product of the yeah. system. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> Jonathan, thanks for taking the time, man. It was uh, it was fun as always. Um, does the 
part of the show where you kind of plug some of the stuff you're working on and, and where people can follow you on online and, and check out some of your great work. Right. Well, I, uh, I, I'm going to plug my Twitter account then at Jonathan Willis on Twitter. And, uh, I write all over the place, but everything gets published there. Sweet. Well, I'm sure we'll have you back on sometime in the near future and, and we'll catch up on everything that's going on in the hockey world then. It was always a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on today. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast. Mm-hmm.